Welcome to the Italian Financial Advisor podcast, exploring all aspects of your financial life in Italy. I'm Andrew Lawford with the Spectrum IFA Group. In this episode, we're going to be exploring a number of issues that have arisen as a result of Brexit. But in doing so, we also discuss situations that are more generally applicable to foreigners moving to Italy, and especially those coming from outside of the EU. If you are interested in how foreign real estate is taxed in Italy, you should find this podcast to be of great help in demystifying what can otherwise be quite a source of confusion. We all know what Brexit means at a high level, but it's in the details that you find out just how much the loss of reciprocity that the UK enjoyed as part of the EU will affect people. What you are about to hear is essentially a discussion I had recently with my colleague Gareth Horsfall, who heads up Spectrum's Italian activities. We often spend time talking through the various situations we come across, as we invariably find some new development that needs to be taken into consideration when helping people plan for the future. It might occasionally seem like we are constantly flagging up the negative aspects of living in Italy. But rest assured, there is plenty of good news in this podcast, so please make sure you listen all the way to the end. To start with, we discussed a situation we frequently come across, where someone who is moving to Italy has continued to use a financial advisor licensed in the UK. Let's hear Gareth explore the ramifications of this. I guess the best thing to do is talk about you know, the pre-Brexit world. Whilst the UK was in the, um, the EU and and how things worked. And, you know, I met a lot of people and they were still working with UK-based financial advisors, but living in Italy. The reality of that situation was it probably wasn't the right thing to be doing anyway, because um, you needed to check to see if your advisor had uh, the correct licenses to, to operate on the Italian territory, even being a member of the EU, another EU member state. An advisor still needs to have the correct EU license to to do work or advise in a in a particular state. The majority of cases I found that UK advisors didn't, but they were doing it anyway because it really was a kind of a, a grey area. You know, we were in the EU; they could kind of advise people. Nobody stopped them doing it. There weren't particularly any big issues with it until until it came to the issue of planning around Italian tax. And of course, if you're UK advisor, even in a pre-Brexit world, didn't have any knowledge of what to do for Italian taxation because they were purely domestic UK-based firms, then what happens is they give you advice that was, in most cases, completely wrong because they had no understanding of the Italian tax and financial system. The worst case scenarios I ever saw, the worst thing you know as well as I do, Andrew, the worst thing you can do is... um, invest people in in offshore uh, Isle of Man, Jersey, Guernsey, etc., offshore vehicles. But how many times did we see that happen? Somebody was moving over. Oh, you're going out of the UK, right? Best thing to do is open up an offshore vehicle. Um, and it was the worst thing that could have happened. And basically, we ended up having to unwind all those things and do the correct thing with it. That was a pre-Brexit world where there was this kind of this sort of shades of grey in terms of understanding what advisors could do and what they couldn't do. That's totally changed post-Brexit. Totally, 100% changed. Now, UK firms are not licensed, full stop, to work in the EU on any other in any other EU state. And so it's very, very, very simple from a client's point of view. You have no choice. 
you come out of the UK system, you go into the EU or Italian resident system and you get advice from Italian market licensed advisors because they're the only ones who can properly advise you on these things. There are two points here that I'd just like to follow on. I mean, one is for people who are considering moving, so they haven't yet moved to to Italy. The the best yeah. idea is to start talking to us before you make the move, right? Because sure. even if you even if you've got uh, a, your licensed advisor in the UK, as you've said, we've we've seen quite a number of times that people come over here with products that have been sold to them ostensibly with the idea that leaving the UK, these will be fine. And then we find that they're not. So you really need to, um, let's call it a, uh, just do some due diligence to start with about how you're going to set your affairs up when you're moving. Then you've got other people who are here and who have been making use, shall we say, of this grey area. And I've heard a few times people have said to me, oh, well, you know, it's post-Brexit. I've got my trusted advisor in the UK. My advisor has sort of said to me, oh, it's all right. I probably can't give you any large-scale advice on, on major decisions, but I can still look after your account, which sort of sounds a little bit like a cop-out to me in that they still want to collect the fees for giving advice, but they've realised that they're actually not allowed to. So what do you say to people who find themselves in, in that situation? Well, look, I, I go back to your point there, which you said about trusted advisor, and I think this is the key point to everything. You know, If I'm moving to Italy, yeah, I've had a relationship with an advisor in the UK for the last 20 years, and I've been satisfied. They've done everything I needed them to do. They've given me great advice. You as an individual are going to really be torn to be breaking that relationship that you've built with them over a long period of time to a point where it's very trusted. You may be even friends with them. Um, and, And then suddenly having to redo everything again or with somebody new, but in a, in a different market. And, and I think that's the biggest problem. It's not actually, you know, the, the mechanics of it. The mechanics are e- relatively easy to do. I mean, for us, it's the job that we do every day. We're able to advise people, we're able to help them to do it tax efficiently. We're able to set them up as they need to be in Italy. Um, but it's, it takes a psychological leap for someone to go, oh, you know, I'm going to break that relationship about the 20-odd years and, and start with somebody fresh when I don't really want to. But the point is, you know, you're starting a life in another country which has different regulations, different tax system, and, and you need to be working with advisors who understand it because the worst thing that happens is those trusted advisors even if they don't set you up in these kind of things like the other man, whatever, they continue just to keep your existing arrangements that you've got in the UK. Now with Brexit, there are more implications. I know of some of which we'll touch on a bit more in this podcast, um, but there are more implications from a tax point of view, more punitive implications from a tax perspective. And so it's absolutely imperative that you take that advice and yeah, okay, your advisor might want to retain that business. I can understand that. But, you know, a good advisor also knows that the best thing is in the client's interests and he needs to hand them over. I have a great example of this, okay? I got contacted just before Brexit happened um, by, it was actually a UK advisor. He's one of the only few, very few ones who've understood the idea of licensed markets and and people giving advice in the correct markets and not trying to do everything from one place. 
Anyway, he contacted me at the end of October 2020 to say that he got this couple who were moving over pre-Brexit, trying to get everything sorted. And essentially, he'd understood that he needed to work with uh, an Italian li licensed or the clients needed to work with a, an Italian licensed um, individual. And so he contacted me with a view of handing me over. And that's exactly what we did. He handed over. But it was a nice sort of smooth process. I worked with him. I explained what we needed to do in Italy. He understood that. We uh, came out of any structures that were going to be punitive for the client. We set them up properly on this side. And it was a transition where we both worked together to get the best outcome for the client in the end. And, and by doing that, it works well. When you've got one side that doesn't want to let go of the client, it makes it more difficult. And so... <laughs> I guess it's just about understanding that there is a transition that needs to be made and it needs to be done by the right people. There is a broader point to be made here about the concept of financial equivalency, which is essentially some kind of mutual recognition in the regulation of financial services in the EU and the UK. Much has been said about it, but we have precious little certainty of what it might mean. There's a lot of talk about this when the UK left uh, the EU and more so at the start of 2021 about this idea that the UK would negotiate a financial equivalence agreement with the EU and, and the EU would accept the UK as being operating in the same way that it does and therefore UK firms would still be allowed to operate under on EU territory. Well, Look, that was supposed to be agreed by the 31st of March. They announced something around the end of March saying we're almost there with something. Since then, we haven't heard anything. And as we're talking today, we're now in May. And I suspect there is not going to be nothing. Brexit doesn't particularly appear to be going great in terms of the relationship that the EU and the UK have got at the moment. Countries like France are saying no financial equivalence if we don't get fishing rights, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's highly complex, and I would, I would suggest that it should be no way that anybody relies on a financial equivalence test, because even if they do agree one, I suspect it will be a nothingness, a bit much like the Brexit agreement in itself. It's something that will need to be negotiated over many, many, many years. So the best thing to do is just forget that completely and just accept that you're going to have to go into the Italian system and do it the Italian way if you want to become an Italian resident. Well, I, th I think we have to be realistic. I mean, certainly from a financial services perspective, that the UK has a lot more to gain from equivalency than the EU does. Oh, massively. Right? So massively. What's, the, what's the incentive for the EU to make concessions to the UK? None. <laughs> none at all, really. Realistically, there are some advantages. It would be wrong to say none at all. But as you've pointed out, the UK is going to be the biggest beneficiary from that. Um, their firms, you know, UK firms have done a huge amount of business as a member of the EU. London has thrived off the back of EU business. And to, to strip that away uh, completely is, is a big problem for the UK. I don't want to get into the talking about Brexit, if it's right, if it's wrong. It is what it is. Um, and it's been done. What we can talk about is the facts of life. It's interesting, actually, the Banca d'Italia, can't remember when it was now, something like October last year, so well before Brexit, sent out a document in, in English and a quite strict document uh, saying any intermediaries, and they included 
financial services intermediaries, and they included everybody in that. So banks, asset managers, insurance firms, advisors, the whole lot, must not operate uh, for Italian resident individuals or companies unless they are authorised in the correct way in the EU, full stop. And it was just matter of fact. There was no woolly bits around the side saying, well, maybe you could do this, maybe you could do that. It was definitive, you're out. So you either jump in with us and say, as a firm, we want to do business in Italy and we're, we're looking to develop our, our business so we set up in Dublin or whatever, or, you know, however it needs to be done, or get out and stay out. So as a client, I would say that's a really important uh, thing to understand is that from an Italian authority point of view, they don't see it as being a sort of a mutually happy relationship either. So it's important to make sure that the planning's done right. The consequences of what Gareth is discussing go well beyond the sphere of financial advice and will impact even UK domiciled managed funds. There are broader points here about directly held assets, which we'll make later on. But for the moment, let's see what Brexit is going to mean for the taxation of UK domiciled funds held by Italian residents. An interesting tax treatment for EU domiciled funds, and it leads into a discussion of Brexit as well, because post-Brexit, the the issue of UK domiciled funds is going to become one that people need to be aware of. So in general, um, again, there's nothing wrong with holding direct funds and these can be held either with an Italian bank or overseas it doesn't actually make any difference they have a a perverse tax treatment whereby if you sell a fund with a gain you get taxed at 26% because it's considered reddito di capitale which is essentially uh, it's as if it was a dividend or or an interest payment Um, if you sell it at a loss it's considered a reddito diverso so it's considered a capital loss and you can't offset it against gains uh, in, in the funds. Now, I remember when we first discussed that and, and you looked at me and said, no, that can't possibly be right. And then we dug into it more and they said, you know what? That's the way it is. Don't ask me why. It's absolutely crazy, but it's one of those things that exists. And then post-Brexit, the interesting thing is that you're no longer going to be taxed at the separate taxation rate, the financial taxation rate of 26%, because in order to have that, they need to be EU domiciled funds. And all of the asset managers have been pretty clear. I've seen letters sent around saying our funds are no longer, you know, exactly the same fund. It was USITS, so EU compliant up until the 31st of December 2020. From the 1st of January, no longer USITS, no longer EU domiciled. And under Italian law, that means that any gains and any income flows that are generated by investments in, in those funds are going to be taxed at marginal tax rates. Mm-hmm. And what's the top marginal tax rate for Italy now? 45. 45%. Okay. So if you're somebody who's already generating a substantial income from things which are definitely taxed at marginal income tax rates, so pensions, for example, or uh, rental income, things like that, you've now got potentially another income stream which is going to create an inefficient tax situation for you because you're going to end up being taxed at higher than the 26% rate, which is what financial income is uh, is always taxed at. As far as directly held investments in general are concerned, 
it's worth considering what is actually involved in declaring these correctly. You end up having to declare each single income flow and you end up having to calculate your capital gains. You have to make the currency conversion into euros if they're denominated in a currency other than euros. You can't just use a market exchange rate. You have to use an official Italian exchange rate, which is provided by the Banca d'Italia. Um, it, it's quite a complicated thing and you can't really expect an Italian accountant, um, even a good one that understands international affairs, you can't just dump a portfolio valuation on them and say, there you go, figure out what my tax is on that. You actually have to sort of dismember this thing and kind of translate it into terms that an Italian accountant can uh, can understand. If I can give you a, a horror story of that that's just come up recently, okay? Exactly that client had a, a direct investor portfolio um, I'd had it for quite a number of years. I, she put me in touch with a commercialista. I talked to them. He emailed just the other day saying, I have no idea. This is a, a qualified commercialist. He said, I had no idea what to do with this. I went to the Agencia dell'Entrate office to talk to someone to see what I could do. The Agencia dell'Entrate office told me just to put it under one code, which as you and I know, there's no way it should all, all go under one code, depending on what the assets are. They at the tax office said, just put everything under one code. And he wrote back to the client. He said, I know this is wrong, and but I don't know what to do. Therefore, I really don't feel comfortable being a commercial Easter. And basically was saying that I'm not going to do it. So that's, well, that's which, which is actually an honest thing for the commercialista to do, yeah, because unfortunately, a verbal indication given by the agencia to, to a commercialista, that doesn't really make any difference because any tax order that's going to occur is going to happen in three or four years' time. Nobody's going to remember that that conversation had ever taken place. And, then, and, and unfortunately, the tax office here generally approaches most people with the idea of, Let's see if there's, you know, if we shake the tree, how much money falls out. And you don't want to be in a situation where they have any means whatsoever to to start contesting what you've been declaring. And that leads me on to an interesting thing which we've been talking about recently and you've written about, and I'm calling it the 51,645.69 euro (laughs) question. Would you like just to tell me what that's all about? Because it's a very weird number. Why have they fixated on on 51,645 euros and 69 cents exactly? What What is that all about? Well, I uh, I wrote about this recently and I said that that figure was taken from the old lira currency and I actually quoted it as one million lira. I was then contacted by somebody and said, no, no, I think you got your calculations wrong. It's a hundred million lira. To be honest, I haven't even looked to see whether I'm right or I'm wrong. Maybe you know. No, no, it, it is a hundred million lira, yeah. It's a hundred million, okay. Yeah. So I believe 51,645.69 is all to do with holding over that amount in euros in foreign currency, in, in cash accounts or in deposit accounts. And, and hence, if you hold more than that figure in foreign currency accounts, so we're talking about non-euro, um, for more than seven days, and then you exchange some of that money into another currency, not necessarily into you know, euros or sterling, or whatever, it becomes after seven days a speculative activity. So at that point, it's almost like a trading activity. You're now a trader in currencies, and you have to make a calculation for capital gains tax based on the difference between 
the conversions of the amount that you've you've transferred out of that currency, which seems highly bizarre, but yet it's another one of those regulations that I think people really need to be aware of. Yeah. You know? Anybody who's got more than, say, about 45, somewhere between 45, 50,000 pounds sterling or, you know, somewhere around maybe 60,000 US dollars. And bear in yeah. mind, this applies to any foreign currency, any and all foreign currency accounts. So if I've got, yep. if I hold five different currencies, over six different banks, I have to count, I have to add all of those up, convert them into euros, and figure out if I'm over this fifty-one thousand threshold. Exactly. Um, yeah. And you're not going to be. You might not necessarily be aware of it unless you're very careful in, in keeping these records. Um, the, the one time you will definitely become aware of it is if you have that amount of money in an Italian bank, because at that point yeah. it will actually be flagged up. And that has yeah. happened to a couple of people that we yeah. know. And it's not impossible to deal with, but it's just one of those pitfalls that if you're not aware of it, it can be a reason for the agencia to come and ask for more information. And yeah. I don't think, it, certainly if it's an Italian bank, it gets flagged up. And if you haven't then declared it in your tax return, you're open to receiving simply a letter asking for clarification. And once yeah. you get that letter, you have to reply to it. You can't just ignore it. So, I think they give you 15 um, days, don't they? 15 days to reply to these it's letters. Not, so. Yes, I mean, it's normally any letters that I've received from the tech, they normally arrive either just on the 15th of August or something or um, <laughs> or just or maybe the day but on Christmas Eve. You know, they tend to have <laughs> just remarkable timing. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing to keep in mind is that ICES, which most people from the UK with any kind of savings will have, carry no tax benefits for an Italian resident. Brexit hasn't actually changed this. They have always simply been considered investment accounts and should be declared and taxed accordingly. An ISA is a, let's call it a tax-efficient UK resident account. You know, Italy doesn't legislate for every other country's tax-efficient accounts in the world and go, ooh, um, a 401k and a Roth plan in the States is taxed this way and an ISA from the UK is taxed this way and whatever it is in Nigeria is taxed this way and that thing that they have in China is taxed this way. I mean, they can't do that, so it has no relevance. So you basically get pigeonholed or, or they just ignore it. And in the case of ISA, it gets ignored. You know, there's no tax wrapper there for the Italian authorities at all. So everything so if that I've is got, in there is taxed. So if I've got 100,000 sterling, for example, in capital gains, latent capital gains inside an ISA, and I'm thinking about moving to Italy, um, if I move and I sell all of my investments after I've become an Italian tax resident, are you saying that yeah. I'm going to be taxed in Italy on those gains? Correct, yeah. yeah. You, okay. This is why, going back to your point, Andrew, before you said, you know, making the transition and planning and contacting us before you move. Because when you're in that, those years of that year of transition and that year, and those year or years before, there are things you can do in the UK and there are possibly things that we can do in Italy to get you set up as well. And so it's so important. Yeah, you would ideally cash down that, uh, that ISA whilst you're in the UK so that you don't get any capital gains tax. And then you would transport those funds into an Italian tax efficient vehicle equivalent of ISA. That's it.
Now, before we listen to the next segment, where we tackle foreign real estate in particular, let me introduce you to the section of the Italian tax return that relates to foreign assets, the quadro erevu. The basic rule is that you must declare all your foreign assets wherever held. It includes pretty much everything, even racehorses or the contents of safety deposit boxes. It certainly covers foreign financial assets and real estate, both of which are subject to a wealth tax. Now, up until a few years ago, people would often take the view that it would be difficult for the Italian tax authorities to find out about your foreign assets. Well, no longer is that the case. CRS, or Common Reporting Standards, took a while to take off, but we know for a fact that information is being exchanged by tax authorities the world over, and routine checks are becoming commonplace. I've seen these information sharing agreements in force now between, between countries all over the world, and particularly in the EU, we've seen that information getting shared on a regular basis. And the one that comes back time and time and time again, and I get contacted probably once a week by somebody saying, I've got a house in the UK, I haven't declared it properly. The Italian tax authorities have contacted me. They say they know I've got this because the information has been shared from HMRC. They know how much income I've earned and they know that I've been declared it. But I've been declaring it properly in the UK. And I'm like, yeah, but it needs declaring again in, in Italy. So let me, let me just go through how it should be done. The first thing to understand is that you've got two forms of taxation on your property overseas when you're an Italian resident, Okay. So the first taxation is on, on any income that you receive from it. So you might be, uh, you might be renting it out. Uh, and the second one is a wealth tax that other countries don't have on, on property, but Italy has wealth taxes on property. And so as an Italian resident, you're taxable in those two ways on your property. In this case, we'll say in the UK. So the first one is the income, okay? I will often hear people going to commercial estate and saying, coming back to me and saying, my, my commercial Easter says, I'm renting this property out and earning this income. I can't deduct expenses in Italy. And they're right, but they're also wrong. Because what they're actually doing is they're telling that you can't deduct expenses directly in your Italian tax return. And that's correct, you can't. But because a property is, in essence, a fixed thing to the ground in the UK, in this case, it cannot be moved with you when you move abroad. It's still there. It therefore has to be subject to the taxation of the land in which you it's situated first. No questions. You have to put yourself through a UK tax return first for your income for your property. So you would complete a UK tax return in the normal way. Uh, you would deduct whatever the UK allows you to deduct as allowable expenses in the UK, and you would submit your tax return every year. Now, someone may say to me, oh, well, I fall under the personal allowance in the UK, uh, so the, uh, the HMRC have asked me not to submit tax returns anymore. Doesn't matter. For the Italian tax purposes, you want to get that document once a year, that stamped document, certificate online, whatever it happens to be, saying you've made your tax declaration and they say there's no income to be paid or income tax to be paid or there, or there is income tax to be paid. But once you get to that point, you've then got an, uh, an income and net of expenses. Not net of tax, but net of expenses. That's the figure that goes in your Italian tax return. And you put that in your Italian tax return. Now, you may say, well, I've paid some tax in the UK on that. 
Why should I have to pay it in two places? Well, you don't. There's a double taxation treaty in force. And all you need to do is, through your Italian tax return, claim a reimbursement on your UK tax. So essentially, all you'll be paying is Italian tax. But you have to make that claim for the UK tax. It doesn't happen automatically. Okay. So that's number one. Sounds complicated. If you've got a good commercial Easter, it's actually quite easy to do. That's at least the intuitive part, because most people understand that if they've got an income flow coming in, that that probably has to be declared somehow. And then we've got this nasty wealth tax, which let me just say, it wasn't brought in specifically to penalise people who are holding foreign real estate. It's something that was brought in in order to to coincide the taxation of foreign real estate with the taxation of Italian real estate, because the top rate of EMU, the Italian property tax, is 0.76% for a property that you're not resident in. Obviously, for the for your principal place of residence and being, if you are resident, a tax resident in Italy, then it's, um, it's fair to assume that wherever you live, if you own that property, is going to be considered your principal place of residents, you don't end up paying much tax at all. But for any any second or third or fourth properties that you have, it gets charged at 0.76%. And they thought, possibly correctly from a theoretical point of view, that it would be fair to tax foreign property as Italian property is taxed. The issue being, of course, that the Italians calculate the taxes uh, for, for the purposes of EMU on the value of this valore catastale, so council value, and that value is typically far below the market value. It's not really a massive problem for a, for a property in the EU um, because, of course, you've got similar concepts to this valore catastale in, in, in Italy. Um, but for properties outside the EU, and that's obviously a massive issue now for the UK, they didn't take that into account at all. So could you just explain how you would calculate this 0.76% when you come to getting your foreign property taxed, assuming it's not in the EU? The wealth tax has become a big issue for a lot of UK property holders because of this change post-Brexit. The Agencia Entrati Tax Authorities have confirmed in a written document that UK property will treated be treated as non-EU property. There's no exceptions here, uh, and so it, it falls outside. So, you know, just to put it into context, pre-Brexit, the 0.76% was charged on the council tax value of the property. So quite often that would have been in a range. It might have been from 50,000 to 70,000. You would pick the mid-range, 60,000 and you would pay, you paid 0.76% on that figure per annum for your property. XEU, that's changed. It's now on the purchase value. So it depends a lot when you bought your property. But for the majority of cases, I would say 99% in, in the cases of my clients and people I know, their uh, tax now has, has increased dramatically because you know, if you've bought in the last 10, 15 years a property in the UK, you're going to have bought at quite a high price. And you're now calculating 0.76% on the purchase price, where provable, of course. I mean, I don't know where it would never be provable. But anyway, let's assume you can prove it. It's on the, the purchase or acquisition value. So, you know, it may have been an inherited property. That's an important point that people say, I inherited this property. I, I don't have a purchase value. You know, but you have an acquisition value. That's the value of the property when it transferred 
into your ownership as part of the probate procedures uh, after death. So that is the point at which you would uh, get a valuation of the property. To do so to you're do. saying you don't, you can't inherit the historic cost for the person no. who has left you the property? No, no. The acquisition cost of the individual who is acquiring the property at that point in time, not the historic cost of when there's a... It's interesting actually just bringing that up because I've actually had just two people out of everybody I know, clients and people, everybody else who've got property in the UK, only two people have benefited from this. And they got incredibly high-value properties, but they bought them like back in, I don't know, 19... Uh, 70s or the the early 80s or something when property values of course were very low both these properties are in central London now are worth a fortune and and yet the uh, the amount of money that they're paying in the wealth tax is less than what they were pay, would have been paying under the old uh, pre uh, Brexit system but these are absolute rarities you know most people have bought and or sold within the last 10, 20 years, when it's very doubtful that prices would have been anywhere near the council tax values that have been used to calculate the wealth tax previously. A lot of people will hold on to their properties that they had uh, overseas because maybe that was where they lived for many years. It might, have been, it might be an old family home, and obviously there's, there's sentimental reasons that you'd want to hold on to that, and they just think, well, I'll hold on to it in case one day I go home and I can rent it out in the meantime. I think now that's become a central question in the whole sort of planning out your retirement years, if indeed that's part of your, if that's part of your strategy to, to fund your retirement. You need yep. to look at the cost profile of the property. It may yep. be, as you said, if you are lucky enough to to have a property that you've bought uh, in the 1970s or 1980s that has a very low value that you can that you can prove, then maybe it's neither here nor there. But it's still something that you you need to uh, need to factor into the equation. I, I think that's a really really important point. Is that a property for a lot of people has emotional value? You know, it's a tangible thing. It's not a portfolio of stocks and bonds and funds and whatever, which I can't touch earns me money. It's a, it's a tangible thing. It might mean something you've had in the family. You know, in a lot of cases, people maybe make a move to Italy and saying, you know, I'm making a permanent move, but I want a base back in, in my home country in case anything goes wrong, I don't like it, whatever. If you strip out all the emotional aspect of that and you just to go right to the financials, you have to now question as a, a, a long-term investment vehicle for you, you have to question that. You have to put that in the bag and say, look, let's do uh, an analysis of this and see if there's something better that you can do with it from the, the money that you would receive or if it's going to still work for you based on these costs involved. As I say, this is stripping out purely, is bringing in to focus solely the financials and stripping out all the emotional attachments that anyone may have with property or any of the other reasons they may want to just keep it. But that can be sort of, overcome and you just want to look purely at what is the best way of being the most tax efficient and living in the most financially competent way in Italy, then I would suggest it needs to be looked at before a move, preferably. A lot of people expect that if, they, if they're going to realise a substantial capital gain on a property that they own outside of Italy, maybe they think about it even for property that they might own inside Italy. And the, the good news is that Italy's tax system is actually fairly generous in that regard. So the only thing to keep in mind is that you have to have, there's a threshold of five years 
once you're over the threshold of five years, doesn't matter where in the world the property is, there will be no Italian capital gains tax payable on it. Obviously, you then have to go and have a look at the capital gains tax regime in the place that the property is located. And there are some interesting rules there as well, as far as the UK is concerned. But there have been occasions where people have benefited from the fact of no longer being resident in the country where their old family home was located, and they were able to sell that and minimise the amount of capital gains tax that was payable. I think you've had some people do exactly that, haven't you? Yeah, I've had a couple do it recently, actually, uh, where they they gifted property to, you know, and a gifted donation from tax purposes is the same same treatment, but they gifted it to their children. The interesting thing for the UK is that the UK does have a, a non-resident taxation on property sales. So keeping it short, if you sell this capital gains tax or, or whatever your rate would be in the UK, the acquisition value, the purchase value for the purposes of calculation is taken at the point uh, when the legislation was introduced. So that's the 6th of April 2015. So in reality, you could sell property with historically massive gains that you've made on it over the years. But the actual cost of the property for calculations of capital gains tax for the UK is, is from the 6th of April 2015 until the, the, the point at which you sold it. Well, you know, there may be nothing actually in a lot of cases if you've, if you've sold a property today from what the value was in 2015 when the market was riding quite high. So there's a potentially huge tax opportunity there. And of course, you know, just to repeat, if you've owned it for more than five years, then you wouldn't be taxed on it on Italy either. I think it just demonstrates that it's not all bad news, right? I mean, you, you sometimes feel like you're the bringer of bad news because you're telling people that situations or structures or, or planning that they have done whilst they were resident elsewhere doesn't work in Italy. And I think that, you know, the more that I think about it anyway, the more that just seems like a natural consequence of the fact that you're living in a in a new country. But obviously, people need to get over that. And then they need to realise that it's not all bad news, that we do have opportunities to plan uh, without, I mean, we're not talking about aggressive tax planning. We're just looking at how the rules work and how you can make use of the, make best use of those. Now we're finally starting to get onto some good news. So let's keep going, shall we? One of the things that we use a lot of is uh, our life insurance wrappers. Let's call them tax wrappers. And they give you a number of benefits. For example, you can get 100% tax deferral until the point uh, that you make a withdrawal from it. You get exemption from inherit from Italian inheritance taxes. Now, Italian inheritance taxes, I often say Italy's a fairly expensive place to live if you're working here and earning money, but it's a very cheap place to die if um, if that's if you're worried about fiscal paradise taxes. place to die, Andrew. Let's put it into <clears throat> it's a fiscal paradise to die. If we're talking about the very simple example of um, spouses or children inheriting money, that only gets taxed. There is a €1 million exemption per year, and that only gets taxed at 4% on any amounts beyond that. So that compares very favourably with most other developed countries. The tax wrappers also make 
all of the tax declarations, all of the problems that we've been discussing about foreign currency, about the taxation of direct held investments, about that strange mechanism that they have for taxing gains on funds that you've realised, that all just disappears. And we can actually structure things for people that if they require a certain amount of income, maybe to top up what they're receiving from a pension, that can be done through withdrawals from a life policy. And it's done in such a way that you'll only suffer the 26% uh, Italian financial assets tax on the deemed amount of the gain. So if I only have 20% gain on the asset that I have in the in the life insurance wrapper, I'm only going to be taxed at 26% on the 20% of the gain that I'm withdrawing. And it makes an enormous difference. Yeah. However, however, it's important to set it up right. So let's just talk a little bit. How do you need to set these things up right so that they do respect the Italian rules and you can get the benefits from them? The main thing is that we're in the EU and it's a it's a single marketplace. So it needs to be compliant for Italian purposes and EU purposes. The great thing is that once it is set up, it is compliant and can easily be portable between jurisdictions as well. I mean, you need to check that out with the providers and where they have bases, etc. But that can be a great advantage. There are, there are various things that the Italians want to see on these policies. I'm going to go back to that example that couple I was telling you about who came over the back end of last year, who had taken some advice and the advisor had understood that, you know, it was good to work with somebody who was based in Italy and and so he ended up passing the the clients over. In their firm, what they'd done is they'd set up a, a life policy for these clients in the UK quite some years ago. And one of the marketing points of this uh, policy was you can use it in as an Italian resident if you move there. And what had happened was that over the years, this company had been bought out by two more companies and regulations had changed. So what they purchased years ago with the view of, oh, well, that'll be good for us. We can just go straight into Italy and that'll be fine. Things had changed and, and no longer was it portable. And it wasn't portable because of, of three main criteria that didn't exist on this, on this product, which need to exist on an Italian product to make it compliant and tax efficient. Essentially, those were, the first was that it needs to have death beneficiaries named. So when you die, they know who the money goes to, uh, which you don't need to put on a UK policy. In fact, it's not requested at all. The second one is that they need a what they call a wealth protector offer on it. So if you want to guarantee that you your money's not going to go with investments down a, past a certain point, on, essentially under the amount that you've invested at the point at which you die, so you you are guaranteed at least a minimum back of your uh, original investment. Then you can, there's an insurance package within there to ensure that. The third one is that you need to have an approved discretionary fund manager. It can't be one of those structures where you're choosing what you want to invest in, uh, you have uh, lots of control over saying, I want to buy, sell this, do that, go, whatever. No, what you have to do is you have to say, look, I want an expert management firm. And what you do is you would basically give a mandate. Uh, you know, We work with the client to establish what their mandate is, How what do they want from their money, they want income, growth, a combination of both, et cetera. And we hand that over to them and say they need to manage the money in this way. 
And that in itself, with us three, it now becomes an Italian compliance structure. You can't just get a UK structure and go, okay, that'll work over there because it's a assurance policy, which are an investment. And that brings us back to that whole idea of, of dealing with people that are licensed because yeah. we only we will only ever propose to somebody that they invest in a product which is licensed for distribution in Italy. Finally, we thought it would be amiss if we didn't pass comment on what we are calling the 7% pensioners tax regime. It almost sounds too good to be true that you get to come and live in Italy without most of the unpleasant tax consequences. You only pay 7% tax and you know the headlines have been pretty positive about it and then unfortunately as often happens in these cases the more you dig into it and the more you get clarifications on certain points from the the tax office the the more it becomes a bit thorny and and certainly something that you have to be careful of so just very very briefly if you're willing to move to certain areas in southern Italy and if you're receiving a pension you're able to make use of what, what I've called the 7% regime. It also gives you an exemption from having to declare your foreign assets. I mean, it has a number of benefits which are really, really good. And unfortunately, what has happened is that there's been a lot of false information or misleading information which has been going around on the internet. So, for example, I saw somebody say, oh, all you need to do in order to prove that you've got a pension is have some kind of foreign source income. So if you're renting out a flat somewhere, then that would be enough, right? Now, this was this was a comment that I saw. I think it was on somebody's Facebook page. And um, unfortunately, that kind of information, it's just wrong. And what the law actually says is that you have to be receiving a pension which you have gained the right to through your working activities. If you're in a borderline case, so for example, I had somebody who said to me that they had a disability pension. Would that qualify? The short answer is I don't know, but uh, it's probably worth getting a ruling. So you can actually go to the Italian tax office before you move, before you try to make use of this thing and uh, and ask for a ruling. And that's probably money well spent. And there have been a couple of these rulings. They're all made public, so you can, you can read them. And the tax office here has made it very clear that they are going to look quite closely at the kind of pension you're receiving. And anybody who has a pension which doesn't quite qualify and for example one of the just to give you an idea of how strict they're being about it one of the rulings regarded an individual who had been living i think in ireland they had signed up to uh, an official pension scheme in ireland which somehow later on had been had sort of lost its uh, requirements to be considered an irish pension and so this individual had paid in, it was now at the point of time where they were able to take money out, uh, but it was no longer considered an official pension, even though it was when they first signed up for it. And the tax office has come back with that and said, very sorry, that doesn't qualify. So I think that's an indication that don't just wing it and it'll be okay, because that's not necessarily the case. The other thing that I've heard about people doing, and I know you've had a couple of queries about this, people that already had a property in Italy, so they maybe had a property in northern Italy somewhere, clearly an area that wasn't eligible for the 7% tax regime, and they were thinking about moving to Italy and, and they wanted to make use of the tax regime. So their idea was, oh, well, I'll just rent a couple of rocks pushed together in, in a bush. Uh, some. Or even buy. Yeah, 
Yeah, buying somewhere, uh, declare residency there, and then I'll opt into the 7% regime, but I'll just, you know, I might spend a few weeks there a year over summer or something, and and I won't worry about it too much, and that'll give me my 7%. But, of course, as you and I know full well, there's nothing that sticks out in a small southern Italian town uh, (laughs) like a foreigner who's just moved in. Right? So if you're going to if you're going to pretend that somehow you can do this and nobody's going to realize that you're not actually there, then you clearly don't know what living in a small town in Italy actually means. I mean I, I look at I live in a town that has five thousand residents and I'm sure that pretty much everybody knows who I am. I may not know many people, but <laughs> No, I mean, the, the thought that you could get away with that and the local police, the local vigilie who have to come around and check that you're residents, have to check that, you're, that they don't know that the 7% tax regime exists and perhaps that you are winging it is, is just ludicrous. I would never entertain that in a middle, million years. I mean, you know, from your, your neighbour who could easily, you know, tell the Guardia di Finanza if they were told to come around and check on you. Oh, no, I never see him around here, you know. He comes twice a year for in August and that's it. To, you know, your local shopkeepers saying, no, no, he pops up every now and again, nice guy, but, you know, I never, never really see him around. And then... And, and then if they really want to figure out where you are, we're ever more traceable, right? So oh. I read somewhere that that the Italian authorities had made requests of Vodafone Italy, right? So this is only Vodafone as a, as a, a cell phone company. They had made in one year over 700,000 requests for information relating to, to to the use of Vodafone Italy's cell phone network. So you, they may not be able to prove exactly where you are, but they'll be able to see which cell phone tower you're using. Yeah, and, exactly. exactly. And, and that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's just a very simple example and probably one that people don't really think about. But if they, if they really thought that you were a target and wanted to come after you, they can gather this information and is it really worth it? You know, you don't want to get into these situations because you're dealing with the unfortunate it's reality. bureaucratic that, society, let's put it like that. It's highly, I mean, the thought that anybody could come to Italy and think they're living in a, a sort of a modern democracy, let's just put this out there. It doesn't resemble really much of democracy when you're living here. It's pretty much a dictatorship sort of in a, in a different guise. So, I mean, you know, joking aside... And I, I think you're... Your, your Beppe Sibonini had something to say on the map on the matter. Beppe Sibonini yeah. is an Italian writer who's who's very amusing and and an astute observer of the Italian psyche and the Italian country. So can you just share with that that piece that you were talking to me about before? I was putting this into a presentation some time ago, and I thought I just have to read this out because it's really I've I've never found a paragraph that that sort of sums up Italy better than this. So here goes. Okay, so it's. Your Italy and our Italia are not the same thing. Italy is a soft drug peddled in predictable packages such as hills in the sunset, olive groves, lemon trees, white wine and raven-haired girls. Italia, on the other hand, is a maze. It's alluring but complicated. It's the kind of place that you can have you fuming and then purring in the space of 100 metres or in the course of 10 minutes. Italy is the only workshop in the world that can turn out both Botticelli's and Berlusconi's. 
As far as I'm concerned, Andrew, look, uh, living in Italy is an absolute pleasure, you know. I mean, I know it's full of problems and you're listening to some of what we've been talking about. People might be going, oh, my God, that's crazy. I don't want to ever get into that. But the point is, it's an amazing, amazing country. Which other country in the world do you have? Culture, history, food, mountains, countryside, seaside, and whatever else floats your boat in, in one small package that you can get to. I mean, it really is a great place. But from a financial perspective, it's all about getting it right so you don't create problems for yourself. And so it's all about balance. And so when it comes to your financial planning, the thing that we're looking for is, is how our assets spread across the things that we've been talking about, so things like pensions, investments, property, how can we have an, an adequate spread of those things so that we can manipulate tax rates to get the best for people? The worst case scenario is somebody comes to me and goes, uh, oh, I'm an investor in buy-to-let property in the UK. I've got you know 15 properties in a portfolio. Great. I want to move to Italy. Okay, well, prepare to be taxed pretty heavily on all of that. Whereas somebody else comes and says, well, you know, I've got some money in pensions, some money in investments, some money in property. What can I do? Okay, let's have a look at where we can manipulate things and make it more tax efficient for you and using structures where we can get that. The other thing I would say is get a good commercialista. Of course, we work with commercialista. We know um, more and more in uh, where we're not working specifically with that one, but somebody's got one of their own. We're now talking to them on a regular basis, particularly around sort of tax declaration time of the year, making sure they do things right for the clients and they understand the structures. Because most Italian commercialists don't understand a UK pension. What is it? How does it operate? How should it be taxed in, in Italy? And so we're helping them. Spread your assets, get a good commercialista, and you will live tranquilly and you will have a great time in what I consider this to be an amazing country. So that is a strong message that I want to put out to, the, to people, not to be afraid of what we're talking about, but to, to know that with the right help and the right planning, we can get it all right from the off and you're just going to have an amazing life here. I think that's the best place to leave it for today. I hope you found this interesting, and please do get in touch with either Gareth or me. Our details can be found on the Spectrum IFA Group website. Just Google Spectrum IFA Italy, and you should find us without any trouble. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now. <laughs>